Well, we've been singing about grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And it's a very familiar song. I've noticed that it's uh, probably just like How Great Thou Art. It's one of the most popular songs beyond the Christian crowd. Sometimes I wonder if people even understand what grace means. And uh, perhaps even in Christian circles, we may not recognize all that is entailed. But what do we understand about grace? You know, I know that we're all familiar with the very basic meaning that uh, we're saved not on the basis of what we deserve, but that according to his kindness, according to his kind favor, he has saved us. Saved by grace. But then what? I want to remind us and teach this morning that grace is not only the basis of our salvation, but as Dallas Willard says, it's not only about our taking away, it's not only about taking away our guilt. And uh, I wonder if that is perhaps the assumption on a lot of people. Grace means that I accept Jesus and that's it, that's it. Uh, and he goes on to say that the interpretation of grace as having only to do with guilt is utterly false to biblical teaching and renders spiritual life in Christ unintelligible. Because grace applies to the whole Christian life. We're saved by grace, yes. But we're also kept by grace. We're changed by grace. I think of that familiar text in Titus chapter 2 that talks about uh, teaching us. The grace of God has appeared. Teaching us to deny certain lusts. Changed by grace. We serve by grace. This morning as I was up and you know preparing a little more for the service this morning, I was thinking of that too. How it's grace that I can do this. And so it is with all of us. So it's only because of grace that any of us Christian leaders would even dare to try to lead and to try to influence. Grace. And there's another one I want to talk about this morning, and that is treating others with grace. We're going to look at a parable here this morning that uh, Jesus gave. I actually like uh, teaching parables. I think one, one reason is that because Jesus told a story that was uh, true to life in the time, but he still told it his own way. He was the writer of the script, so to speak. And because of that, he could sharpen the focus. He could really highlight what he wanted to highlight. Uh, you know, many of you have run across this, that uh, sometimes uh, uh, fiction is, is truer than truth sort of thing. And, uh, and yes, uh, Jesus sharpened up these parables to, to, to make his point. And uh, this one is very much about grace, even though uh, grace isn't in, the word grace isn't there. It's a pretty colorful story. It's intriguing. Brings up many questions. I remember my daughter-in-law raised in the Christian faith, a wonderful, fine Christian believer, but she confessed, you know, I really have problems with this particular parable. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, and it's about the owner of a vineyard. 
It is grape harvesting time. The owner goes to the employment market to hire workers. He makes his first trip at early in the morning, probably 6 a.m., and he hires some workers. He agrees with them to pay them the standard fare, one denarius for a full day's work. Standard fare rate. But the vines have produced an abundance of grapes and the time could be short, so he goes back at a 9 o'clock and hires more workers. He promises them that he'll pay them what's fair. Then he goes back again at noon. He makes the same arrangement. And later in the middle of the afternoon, and finally even at 5 o'clock, he goes back to get some more workers. And, uh, and he asks some of these uh, men that are standing around there, he says, how come you're standing here idle all day? And the response is, because nobody has hired us. And so he hires even them. More laborers. Well, then evening comes, and it is time to pay. And that's where I want to pick up the story and read it. It says in verse 8, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Grace. I want to talk about two things about grace. And the first comes very directly out of the parable here, and that is that God is a God of grace. Even as uh, Peter says when he uh, addresses uh, the readers, uh, he says, may the, the God of all grace, okay? Not just someone who does grace, but someone who is he is a God of all grace. And so we, we see that in this, uh, this parable. He's the God of grace. And so I want to talk about that. And then that, towards the end of the sermon, I want to talk about we're called to be people of grace. But first of all, God is a God of grace. In this parable, the landowner occupies center stage. And it's very obvious from Jesus telling this parable that he represents God. In the immediate context, at the end of chapter 19, the disciples have been asking Jesus about kingdom rewards. And they were just in a conversation with a rich young man, and Jesus encouraged him to sell your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me. And then it says he went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. 
And then Peter asks this question. He says, uh, what are we going to have? You know, I mean, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus assures them that they will be rewarded manifoldly. Strong assurance that's given to them. Um, but, you know, they're going to get wonderful reward. But it might be easy for them to think that the rewards are going to be based on what they deserve, on merit. And the harder and the longer that we work, the greater the sacrifice, the greater will be the rewards. And yet Jesus is saying, but many who are first are going to be last. And you see, the Jewish leaders in that day, they, they, they were very much into God is going to reward on the basis totally of what you've done. He's like an exact accountant. And he pays out payment and punishment, measure for measure, depending on what you've done. And it's not like that, according to this parable. In the words of David Hubbard, he says, not so, Jesus countered. If you read God as a legalistic human manager, a stickler for accuracy, a penny-pinching employer who only pays what he must and begrudges that, you have misread him entirely. And then it's like Jesus saying, let me tell you what God is really like. And then he tells the story. And in the story, he shows that God treats people in a way that goes beyond what they deserve, beyond just being fair. That at the end of the day, all who worked in the vineyard will take home a full day's wage, even those who worked only a part of the day. Even those who only worked for an hour, they still get a full day's wage. And that's not all. They actually get paid first, which is part of the point he's making here. Uh, that the first shall be last. Now, I think <laughs> this goes contrary to the way we uh, expect things and the way we might want to live. It's not fair. And yet, Jesus is showing in the conversation here from the landowner that, uh, you know, the landowner is being completely just. None of the workers got less than they deserved. Those who worked a full day, they got paid in full. They got a full day's wage, full justice. But to those who were short, who needed more hours, they didn't have all the hours they needed, so they needed more, and he gave them also a, a, a full day's wage. They needed more, so he gave them extra. He gave them grace. David Hubbard has put it like this, and I think it's so right on. Grace never does less than justice demands. Grace never does less, but grace has the freedom to do much more. And that's the nature of grace. It's free-flowing. And maybe that's part of the meaning that the first, sometimes the first are going to be last. Because it's, it's free-flowing. It goes far beyond what is just. The landowner had a right to be generous with his own money, therefore he could tip up the amount to a full day's wage for those who had been able to work only for one hour. Grace to those who were short, not injustice to the others, because they, they also got what they had agreed and what was just, what was fair, and what they needed, by the way. Every person needed a full day's wage to take home pick up groceries on the way. 
But note the reaction here. Note the grumblers. Verse 10 and 11. So when those who came who were hired, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they began to grumble against the uh, landowner. You know, we worked the heat of the whole day, the whole day. We're tired. We're thirsty. And, uh, and they see his generosity and he's saying, the, you, you, you know, you're really devaluing what we have done by raising the stature of, of these others, by giving them the same amount as us. It's not fair. Those who work more should be paid more. For them, from their perspective, grace was a put down. How do we explain this? And I think Jesus really does explain it, but maybe in some of our own thinking and own words we can understand better. See, the landowner argues that what he has done is completely just. I did you no wrong. I provided you with a job. We agreed on the rate. Everyone knows that that is a fair wage for a day's work. What loss is it to you if I choose out of sheer generosity to provide all the workers with a full day's wage? Why do you begrudge my generosity? Then he says in verse 15, don't I have a right to spend my own money in the way I want to spend it? Once he had met his obligations, which in this case was to live up to his contract, He had a perfect right to use the extra money he had. Once he had paid his obligations, he could use any of his money the way he wanted to. And what did he want to do? He wanted to be generous with those who would otherwise have had less. Grace is like mercy, and it's not only about what is deserved, but it's also about what is needed. You think of the songs we have sung this morning about grace, amazing grace, and all of it. It has to do with what's needed, not about what's deserved. And so the ones who came late in the day, they didn't have a job until late in the day, and yet now, because of his generosity, they could go home. They could go to home to wife and kids and say, you know, I've made a, a full day's wage for us full day's pay and so it is with grace it's not responding to obligation god does not owe us grace otherwise it wouldn't be grace it's out of sheer generosity and then he challenges the grumblers he says are you are you envious because i am generous king james is your eye evil and that was an idiom for jealousy are you, are you jealous? ESV, do you begrudge my generosity? See, envy, jealousy here, would have been happier if these latecomers had to go home without much money, if they had to go to bed hungry, if their kids had to go to bed hungry, envy would be happier with that. They'd be more, envy would be more comfortable. Because envy cannot stand to see others blessed 
if it, make, if it doesn't make them just as blessed. But if we are really tuned into grace, we realize that what we have is of grace and we will be in favor of grace wherever and whenever it is given out. I want you to just speculate a little bit here. What if in heaven someone who had sacrificed less, someone who had served the Lord a shorter time period and hadn't had to sacrifice that much, what if they received just as much reward as you? Would that bother you? Let's go a little further. What if the person was given more reward than you? Remember those who worked only an hour, they were not paid more, but they were paid first. They were given priority. And I think that's the very thing that makes this parable difficult. There's mystery here. And our knowledge is limited. But we are aware of certain kingdom principles. And I'm going to proceed to kind of answer that hypothetical question based on some kingdom values here. It would seem to me that when we live by kingdom values, we celebrate the other person's reward. That would be part of it. Kingdom values. We celebrate what's good for the other person. A couple of weeks ago, I, I suggested it might be sometimes more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. Because, you know, we tend to be a little envious, and if other people get something that we had wanted, it's hard for us to celebrate it. Whereas if disaster happens to them, uh, we, can, we can weep with them. But you see, that won't be a problem in heaven. And that won't be a problem with us today if we live by kingdom values. If I'm living by kingdom values, I am celebrating grace wherever it happens. And it does, it's not about me. But it's about pure love. And again, I'm saying according to kingdom values. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet, I'm sure. But to the extent that we live by kingdom values. It's about pure love and we celebrate grace wherever it happens. And we look beyond ourselves. It's not about ourselves. But you know, it's not the way it often is with us because here and now, so often, it's about our status. It's about our competition. And here we compare ourselves to others. Are we just as good looking? Are we just as smart? Are we just as influential? Are we being paid all we should according to our value? And maybe sometimes it isn't even that we're convinced about the value, but we need that extra so, so we can feel better about our value. Is our house as impressive? How about our car? <laughs> Might even go in this direction. Am I as spiritual as this other person? Here we envy. But remember, envy is sin. In fact, it's a very serious sin. But in the kingdom, there will be no envy, but there will be pure love. Now, does that mean that we don't care about getting a reward? There are many texts, many texts that talk about looking for the reward. And so it's not about not wanting a reward. But I'll tell you something. I think the marathon might be the best example 
of the kind of aiming for something that is in the eternal, uh, in the eternal sense. And I'll tell you why. As we were uh, driving here this morning, we were diverted a lot because of the marathon. But as I looked at those runners, you know, my sense is they were not running to beat others. They were running because this was a personal goal. This was good for them. And for them just to complete it, that was reward enough. They didn't have to be first or second or third. And you know, I'm not aware of any text in Scripture where it talks about seeking a reward or running the race that we are to win in front of anyone else. It's not about that. It's about winning in the sense of completing the race. And so envy is out. Envy is not out. And what we care about is the masters saying, well done, that's the call not to do better or worse than anyone else, to forget about ourselves and just be and celebrate everybody's reward because pure love and grace looks outward. And in the kingdom, the highest joy will be to see Jesus honored. And next to that, nothing will give us greater joy than to see others also honored. The landowner represents the God of grace, the God of all grace. But we're also called, not so directly from this parable, but overall, we are called to be a people of grace. A people of grace, like father, like son. What is it? Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Think of it. Our Father is merciful. Uh, we are His children, and we are to demonstrate family likeness. That's Matthew 6:36. Many familiar passages from the or texts from the Sermon on the Mount: "Turn the other cheek, go the second mile." Matthew 5:38 and following. That's about grace. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Luke 6. And again, give grace to people. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's passing on the grace that has been given to us, passing it on to others. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. And that wasn't an encouragement to count, you know. I've only got uh, three, three more to go, and I'm, I've done enough forgiving. No, it's about saying that there's, it's an infinite number. George Herbert had a note. He said, he that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. <laughs> Isn't that good? He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. To, to refuse grace to others is to vote against it. And to vote against grace is to vote against the very thing that you need. And it would seem that when we look at Jesus passing judgment and scolding and rebuking people, it seemed that he reserved his harshest rebukes for those who would block grace. 
those who were against him, giving grace to the kind of people he wasn't supposed to associate with. Blockers of grace. Nothing seems worse in his eyes. And that includes blocking grace in our own life. Don't block grace. You need grace. Don't tell yourself you don't need it. We do. Even as I said about coming to the table, we come recognizing that we need Jesus. God has given me so much more than I deserve. And so I must do the same for others. Having received his amazing grace, we must pass it on. And so as we go from here, let grace be our operating mode, believing, resting in it for ourselves, and then glad to pass it on to others. <clears throat> I close with a story that was in Leadership Journal a number of years ago. It comes from Robert D. Moore as he recalls his early years and days in Ontario. <clears throat> he says, when the apples ripened, Mom would sit all seven of us down, Dad included, with pans and paring knives until the mountain of fruit was redu reduced to meat rows of filled canning jars. She never bothered keeping track of how many we did, though the younger ones undoubtedly proved more of a nuisance than a help. You know, cut fingers and squabbles over who got which pan and apple core fights. But when the job was done, the reward for everyone was the same. The largest chocolate-dipped cone that money could buy. A stickler might argue it wasn't fair since the older ones actually peeled apples. But I can't remember anyone complaining about it. A family understands it operates under a different set of norms than a courtroom. In fact, when the store ran out of ice cream and my youngest brother had to make do with a popsicle, we felt sorry for him. Despite his lack of productivity, he had eaten all the apples he'd peeled that day, both of them. God wants all his children to enjoy the complete fullness of eternal life. No true child of God wants it in any other way. Philip Yancey has this note that I think is right on target, and it fits so well under that parable that we looked at. Grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. Grace isn't about who finishes first or last. It's about not counting. And so treat yourself with grace. Treat others with grace. Please don't think that means we're not accountable of course we are that's part of grace too but this isn't so much about that but this is the way we treat people in their needs and in their mistakes grace let's pray lord may we be people who not only sing amazing grace but people who demonstrate that we have been recipients of that amazing race. But not only that, that we are the kind of people who are anxious to pass it on and become known for our generosity in the way we treat others. Father, we pray, for, that, we pray that we might go for here, better recipients and better distributors 
of amazing grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.